0: Scripture reading this morning will be in Acts chapter number 4. If you would all please stand. We're going to read verses 32 and uh, read right through the chapter division down to verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14 uh, of chapter 5. So is that confusing enough for you? Uh, Acts 4, 32 down to chapter 5, verse 14. And uh, let's read these responsively. So I'll read the first verse and ask that you join with me on the second verse. We'll continue every other verse. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. and No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet And breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them. In high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Father, we pray now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that you would help us to study this text uh, with fresh, open eyes, that we would see what it is that the Spirit of God has for us to learn this morning from the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're looking at a well-known story, if you're uh, familiar with the church and with the Bible, you've probably heard this before, story of Ananias and Sapphira. I remember as a little kid growing up in the church, we used to have these skits uh, where people in the church would act out the various uh, parts of of Bible stories, and uh, on one particular occasion, somebody was sick, and so at the very last minute, uh, I ended up getting to play the part of Ananias. And uh, my job was pretty easy. They dressed me up in a row, put some sandals on me and stuff like that. And uh, and I walked in, set the money down in front of the kid playing the part of Peter. Uh, He said something, and then I was supposed to fall over dead and get carried out, Uh, which at the time I thought was a pretty cool gig. Uh, So maybe if you grew up like me, you're probably already pretty familiar with this story. But as with many familiar stories in Scripture, it's important to try to look at them with fresh eyes uh, to see what God has for us in this text, not to just assume that we know everything that's going on here, and uh, and so we don't need this part of the Bible. Uh, before we get to the text, I want to begin by reminding you of something that Jesus said back in our study of the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> Luke chapter twelve, verse one. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. Uh, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up. That will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So he says to his disciples, to his followers, beware of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was characteristic of the Pharisees, as we saw many times in our study of Luke. Uh, The Pharisees were, of course, the group of strict religious people uh, who kept all of the rules. They lived fastidious and holy lives on the outside, but inwardly, Jesus said they were full of wickedness. In other places, Jesus compared the Pharisees to a cup or a dish that looks clean and sparkly on the outside, but inside, where it counts, it's filthy. And so Jesus warns his followers, watch out for this in your own lives. It's very easy as Christians to keep all of the rules and impress people around us, do all of the right things in the eyes of others, but in our hearts be very far from God. So this morning, we're going to see what happens when a couple of members in this church in Jerusalem fall into the Pharisaical mindset. So just so you know where we're going, eventually, I've entitled the sermon today, When Christians Act Like Pharisees. So far in the life of this first century church, things have been going great. People have been saved. There's miracles, signs and wonders taking place. The church is growing. God is adding to their number daily. Uh, It's a very exciting time to be a part of this church. Not only is there numeric growth, God adding members to the church, but there's also a great spirit here. Uh, Verse 32 describes it this way. The full number of those who believed, that's the church, were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Everything seemed to be going great. But as we'll see this morning, even the very first New Testament church had problems. All churches have problems because all churches are made up of sinners. Uh, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. The reality is, even though we as Christians try our best to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, we're still flawed people. And so when you get a group of flawed people together and form a church, inevitably there will be problems. And to me, it's sort of encouraging Uh, that even this first church here in Jerusalem had its problems. Even in these early days when God's hand was clearly at work blessing this church, it wasn't a society of perfect people. And today we'll see the very first issue that rises up in the life of this church. Back in chapter 2, Luke had already told us about the radical generosity of this church. But he reminds us again here in chapter 4, sort of to set up what's coming with Ananias and Sapphira, verse thirty-four says, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, <clears throat> and it was distributed to each as any had need. By the way, the irony is not lost on me that I'm preaching this text uh, the day after our rummage sale. I didn't plan it that way; it just sort of worked out. I didn't pick the date or anything. Uh, so, those of you who sold things, make sure you give all the proceeds, or we will know. I'm just kidding. Um, but th- this sort of idea goes all the way back to the New Testament, people uh, selling things, giving the proceeds to the church. In this case, the generosity of this early church extended even to large scale things like property or houses. I mean, can you imagine uh, selling a field or a house or something maybe you didn't really need, but that's still a quite a large sum of money to just give to the church. And yet this is what was taking place. And Luke highlights one such scenario in verse 36. It says, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas uh, is just a really cool guy. We're going to run into him a lot in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, Barnabas ends up being the only one willing to receive the Apostle Paul when he is first uh, converted to Christ. Barnabas is then chosen by God to be a missionary with Paul. They travel around uh, planting churches everywhere they go. Barnabas is just a great guy. And you'll notice here, by the way, in verse 36, his name is actually Joseph. Uh, Barnabas is sort of a nickname that the apostles gave him. And it means son of encouragement, which gives you an idea of the kind of reputation uh, that Barnabas had here in this church. Luke tells us that Barnabas sold a field that was his, it belonged to him, and he brought the money from the sale, laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, I don't know, maybe he was the first person to do this and kind of got this whole uh, idea going here in the church, or maybe Luke is just highlighting his sacrifice in particular to introduce us to Barnabas, I'm not sure. Uh, but apparently word got around about Barnabas's act of generosity, and that brings us to chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Notice the very first word is but, which shows us a contrast. So this is in contrast to Barnabas's act of sincere generosity. You have Ananias and Sapphira's act of deception. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they too sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they, they sold a piece of land. And then they split the money from it. Uh, We'll we'll keep back some of it for ourselves, and we'll bring some of it to the church. The idea being that everybody will think that we brought all of it. Just one problem, Peter knew the truth. Uh, It seems that the Spirit made it clear to Peter that they were being deceptive. And so when they bring the money and they lay it, Ananias in particular, he comes and lays the money uh, before the apostles. Verse 3 says that Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Burials were done in these days. Immediately after someone died, they would be carried out and buried. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So Ananias had already given them the money. Uh, Sapphire, of course, is in on it. And so Peter asks her point blank, hey, your husband gave us this much money. Was that the total from the sale of the land? And she says, yes. Verse 9, Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now what exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do wrong, and why is this such a big deal? I mean, so what if they only gave part of the money to the church? That's still a great thing to do, isn't it? First, let's establish what the sin wasn't. And Peter is very uh, specific here in clarifying. Verse 3, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Notice verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So the sin wasn't that they kept back some of the proceeds. They did not have to sell their field. Nobody was making them do this. It was theirs. And even after they sold it, Peter says, you could have kept the money. It belonged to you. Peter makes clear that the issue here is not about the amount of money they gave. Uh, Splitting the proceeds, giving some to the church, keeping some for themselves. That was not a problem. The issue was their intentional deception. They contrived this deed in their hearts. They lied. Notice that Peter said they lied to God, to the Holy Spirit, probably meaning that they had vowed to God to give the proceeds from the sale. And maybe after it had sold, they had a change of heart and decided to keep it for themselves. Now let's take a step back and ask what led to this lie? What was the motivation, the attitude of the heart here? We must understand that behind every act of sin is an inward heart problem, an inward sin of the mind. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says, your righteousness must be deeper than the Pharisees. They say, don't murder. I say, don't allow anger or hatred to remain in your heart. The Pharisees only deal with the external sin. Jesus was teaching, we should stop the sin while it's still in our hearts before it gets to the point of an outward action. Verse 27, same concept. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same principle here. Murder begins in the heart as hatred. Adultery starts in the heart as lust. Stealing begins in the mind with coveting that something that doesn't belong to you. All acts of sin originate in the heart. As James writes, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to do this? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? So what was the sin of their heart that led to them lying about their donation? In this case, the deception of Ananias and Sapphira started with hypocrisy, that inward motive that led to the eventual sin of lying. As John Stott writes, Ananias and Sapphira wanted the credit and prestige for their sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. They wanted to impress others with their godliness, their generosity. And this is contrasted with Barnabas's act. His motivation was sincere love. Ananias and Sapphira's motivation was pride. They wanted the accolades. They wanted the praise of man. They wanted to have the reputation that Barnabas and others had for their generosity. Hypocrisy is the heart of their sin. The sinful mindset of the Pharisees had infected the church. God really hates hypocrisy. The people who frustrated Jesus the most throughout his time on earth were the hypocritical, fake, religious crowd. Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Verse 5 there is really key to understanding the mindset of the Pharisees. All the good things that they do, they do to be seen by others. There's no sincerity there. They're not trying to please God as much as they're trying to impress others. Again, some of Jesus' harshest words were leveled at these religious hypocrites. Verse 25 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which appear which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God hates hypocrisy. And so Jesus says to his followers and to us this morning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Watch out for this sin in your life. Now, isn't it a bit severe of God to kill Ananias and Sapphira over this? I mean, yeah, they lied. They they were trying to impress people with their good deeds. But still, this action of God seems a bit harsh. And I think the reason that we feel that way when we read these texts is because we have become so accustomed to mercy that we expect it. And when we expect God to be merciful, justice seems unjust. R.C. Sproul gives a great illustration of this in his book, The Holiness of God, which deals with these types of issues. He talks about his time teaching as a seminary professor. He would start out the class each semester uh, by telling his students very clearly, I will not accept late work. Turn in your assignments on time, or you will get an F. Very clear, very straightforward. Then the due date for the first assignment comes around. About 90% of the students turn the paper in on time, 10% turn it in late. For one reason or another, they just don't get it done on time. And so they come asking for more time. And the professor says, "Okay, just this once, I'll give you an extra week to finish it. Then the due date for the second assignment comes around. Now only 75% of the students turn it in on time. And 25% of the class is asking for more time. And so the professor once again says, "Okay, I'll give you until next week to finish it. Then the due date for the third assignment comes and 60% of the class turns it in on time, 40% asks for more time. And the professor says, no, you all get an F on this assignment. And the students are shocked. They say, that's so unfair, how could you do that? The professor says, no, it was unfair that I let you off the hook the last two times. I made it clear at the beginning of the class you would fail the assignment and I will not accept any late work. I think that's a pretty good illustration of why we get so outraged at God sending judgment in the Bible. We're so used to God being merciful that we take it for granted after a while. And so we're shocked when God strikes somebody dead. Uh, we think that's unjust. We presume on his grace. In reality, we ought to be shocked at God's mercy. When you and I sin and sin and sin, we ought to be shocked that God still gives us our next breath. But we're so accustomed to God's long-suffering and grace toward us, that it seems wrong if he acts with swift justice. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, I also think that God did this to set an example right at the start of the church, that sin is a big deal. Back to verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and notice, great fear came upon all who heard of it. Also, verse 11, after Sapphira died and was buried, says great fear came upon The whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. There was a clear line of who was in the church and who was not. The death of Ananias and Sapphira had a purifying effect on this early church. And what we should take away from this story is that God is zealous for the purity of his church. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus gave his life on the cross for the church. And Paul says he died not just to save us from hell or to give us eternal life, but to cleanse us, to make us holy. Jesus suffered and died so that sinners could have their lives and hearts transformed by the gospel. And so to be a religious hypocrite, fostering sin in your heart while you seek to impress others with your show of spirituality, this is a disgrace to the death of Jesus. He died to save us from sin and purify a people for himself. And so hypocrisy especially is a heinous sin in the sight of God. When we act like we're genuine followers of Jesus outwardly, but in our hearts it's all just a show. When we we do religious deeds, but there's really nothing behind it other than trying to impress people, that cheapens the sacrifice of Jesus who bled and died to save us from our sin. And so this had a purifying effect on the church. So far in our study of the early church here in the book of Acts, the church has been just growing and growing, more and more people being added, baptisms, new members. This was a daily occurrence for this church. God's hand was clearly at work in their midst in an incredible way. Yet here we see the first two members being removed from the church because the highest priority in every church shouldn't just be numeric growth, but purity. God wants a church to be people who are the real deal. So sometimes members have to be removed for the sake of the testimony of the church. Back to verse 13. It says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. They had a high reputation uh, in the eyes of the uh, the outside world that saw this church, and yet there was also a nervousness to join them. Verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men, and women, So no one dared join them, but more than ever, believers were added. I think the meaning there is this act of judgment scared off all but the totally committed. Unsaved people should not feel comfortable in the church. Uh, we are not a seeker-sensitive church. Some churches will literally go around in communities with clipboards and ask, uh, basically, what do you want in a church? And try to tailor the church to the desires of the world. Uh, we don't do that. A biblical church should be something that unregenerate people want nothing to do with. Because here, your sin will be confronted. Any error or false teaching that you've embraced will be corrected. It's not comfortable to be in a true church for the unsaved. This is a place for true believers in Jesus, committed followers who seek to obey their Lord. And as the church remains a pure beacon of light, it will both repel darkness and draw in those whom God is adding to his church. Uh, we don't just want to fill the room with people. We want God to add to his church those who are truly converted. And in addition to accurate biblical teaching, teaching the word of God, another component of being a church that God will bless is remaining pure. So why did God strike dead Ananias and Sapphira for their sin? I think he wanted to demonstrate right at the outset, while the church was still in its infancy, the importance Of keeping the church pure, the danger of hypocrisy creeping into the church. And even for us today, this is still a powerful reminder to look back at the story and to realize how vital it is to keep our church clean. Ananias is to the church what Achan was to Israel in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the story in Joshua, God made an example of Achan to warn Israel as they were just entering the promised land to show them that sin must not be tolerated. And so let's move now into some application for us today. What are the lessons that we are to learn? Is the lesson, you better not do this or God will strike you dead? Uh, First of all, let's consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's giving instruction to the church on how they are to take communion. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The church in Corinth were very flippant uh, about their taking of the Lord's Supper. If you read the rest of the chapter there, they were just taking it willy nilly, not thinking much about it, not holding it in high regard. And so Paul tells them, you need to be very careful. By the way, this is why at our church we are very careful who we give communion to. And I always remind you, and I always will, before we take communion as a church, that this this is a time for self-examination. I want this to be taken very seriously. Paul says, some of you in Corinth have not examined yourself properly before taking communion. And as a result, you've brought judgment on yourself. You see that in verse 29. And here's the kind of judgment he's referring to. Verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, because some of you have been taking communion flippantly in an unworthy way, some of you have become sick or even died as a result of God's judgment. So God does still at times physically judge those who persist in sin. James chapter 5 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So when you get sick, James says, check your heart. Of course, it's not always God's judgment. Good and godly people do get sick, but it is something to consider. When you do get sick, to examine your heart, make sure that you're repentant of any known sin. Same thing with the Lord's table. This is a time for members of a church to do a heart check, to examine ourselves, make sure that we are right with the Lord. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't don't continue in sin expecting that God will just keep letting it slide. That's the lesson of Ananias and Sapphira. A truly repentant heart turns from sin. And this is what the whole Christian life is supposed to be, a life of continually repenting, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, pursuing Christ-likeness and godliness. And so as an individual, the lesson is fear God and fight sin in your life. More on that in a minute. As a church, speaking more broadly here, I think the lesson is to keep the church pure. Now, normally, God doesn't kill members like this. Again, I think this was a particular example for the early church to demonstrate how seriously sin must be dealt with. The normal means that Jesus has given to his church is, is the spiritual accountability of its members for one another. We are given the responsibility of dealing with sin in our own congregation. Paul, writing again to the church in Corinth, says, "...it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans." For a man has his father's wife. So apparently there was a man in this church in Corinth that was having an immoral relationship with his mother or maybe his mother-in-law. Verse 2, And you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And then verse 11, now I am writing to you not to associate With anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul says about this guy in Corinth that you need to get him out of the church, remove him immediately. Now, this is not what should be done in all situations. As a general rule, private sin should be dealt with privately and public sin should be dealt with publicly. And generally, it's best to follow the outline in Matthew 18 that Jesus provides for us, taking progressive steps before we finally remove someone from membership. In other words, you don't normally jump right to that. Normally, you confront them, give them an opportunity to repent. But in this case, the sin of immorality with his mother or mother-in-law was so flagrant and just open that Paul says, forget the process, get that guy out of your church now. Open sin in the church cannot be tolerated. Like pulling weeds that the flowers may grow, or cutting out cancer for the health of the body. You have to deal with sin in the church for the church as a whole to remain pure in God's sight. And so the goal of spiritual accountability is twofold. Uh, To call those in the church who are true followers of Christ to live holy lives. And secondly, to remove from the church those tares among the wheat. You can tell a lot about someone's spiritual condition by how they respond when they are confronted with their sin. And in a church that practices real spiritual accountability, this will have a purifying effect on some, and it will inevitably drive out others. And both of those are good things. may not seem like good things. It's hard when people leave the church. I want everybody to stay. I want everybody to join the church and stay here forever. Uh, but if we're going to be a true church that takes following Christ seriously, preaching the truth, teaching God's law, spiritual accountability among our members, these are duties that we have to keep the church pure. The purity of the church is a big deal to God. That's why Jesus died, to purify a people for himself. And each local church is an outpost of God's kingdom in the world. We are displaying to our community what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so the reputation of Christ is at stake in how we live before the watching world. That may in fact be why here in Acts chapter 5 is the first mention of the word church in all of the book of Acts. In fact, in all of Luke's writing. He's referred to gatherings of Christians in Acts, but here is the first time the actual word church appears. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it first appears here after this incident with Ananias and Sapphira. Because the church is a called-out assembly of people, separate from the world. We are to be seen by those around us as different, called to a a life of following Christ. Another side note uh, alongside this point I'll mention is, the very first time that Jesus says the word church is in Matthew 18, uh, right in the middle of teaching on church discipline, dealing with sin in the church. He says there in that passage, if you see a brother sinning, confront him. If he doesn't listen, take a couple others with you, confront him again. And if he still will not repent, then you bring it before the church. And if he doesn't listen to the whole church calling him to repentance, then remove him from the church. That's all in Matthew 18. And that's the only mention of the word church in the Gospels. I think the point is clear. The church is to be a group of people who are called to holy lives. And we must have a good reputation. We should work hard to uphold our testimony. And so the overall application for us today is fear God and keep his commandments. Ananias, why did you test the spirit? You knew that this was wrong and you did it anyway. You thought you could, you'd see if you could get away with it. When I was a kid growing up in upstate New York, there were a few times during the winters there when I walked out on some ice that wasn't particularly thick. Uh, Maybe a portion of a lake had frozen over or something and I would Test it out just to see if I could walk on it, maybe do some skating or something. And so you'd take a step out and kind of listen for any cracking. Uh, You'd jump up and down a little bit before you take the next step just to make sure that it's all good. Ananias and Sapphira were acting like someone who just waltzes out over the ice and takes their chances. They put God to the test to see if they could get away with it. And most of us act like this all the time. We sin willingly. We don't even consider if God might send... Swift judgment on us for what we're doing. It doesn't even cross our minds. We test God. So we need to recover a healthy fear of the Lord. This is why we hold each other accountable. Uh, This is why I don't hold back from preaching uh, even hard sermons that confront every one of our sins, including my own. It's for our own good. I don't want you under God's judgment. I want you to live a blessed life. I want judgment day to be a good day for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We would all do well in light of our study this morning to fear God. Second 2 Timothy two nineteen, God's firm foundation stands, bearing his this this seal. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you better live that and not just say that. Now, all of us at times are like an and sapphire. We all are hypocrites. Each one of us has ran out across that ice and just assumed that we're going to be okay. God's not going to judge me. I'll get away with this again. But we must learn from the example here in Acts chapter 5 not to take advantage of God's patience and grace toward us. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. It's not that you're never going to sin. You are. The question is, do you turn from that? As soon as we spot the sin or hypocrisy or wicked thoughts in our heart, We must confess that to God and repent. Don't allow sin to fester inside of you. And don't fall into unbroken, habitual patterns of sin. Fear God and repent. And the Lord's Supper gives us a great opportunity to do just that. A communion is yet another means by which God has ordained for the purity of the church to be maintained. It's a time of regular self-examination and repentance. So I'm going to ask Brother Malachi to come to the front at this time. We're going to take the Lord's Supper.